Hello and welcome to Our World is Local from Craters, the podcast about all things local government. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Steve Quartermain in Conversation with the series that takes a deep dive into the world of planning with some of the industry's most prominent and respected figures. In this episode, Steve sits down with Gail Mayhew, the Commissioner of the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission, to explore the importance of place in people's lives. Hello and uh, welcome to another In Conversation with Steve Quartermain and today I'm delighted to have as my guest uh, Gail Mayhew. Now, um, good, uh, hello Gail. Delighted to be here Steve, nice to see you. Um, now we um, uh, worked uh, together on the, uh, when you were Commissioner of the uh, Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission and, uh, and one of the things I want to talk to you about today is uh, stewardship. Now, um, one of the things that came out of the report was a call for there to be uh, more attention paid to uh, how stewardship might change the way development is delivered. Um, And I suppose I I, I want to ask you at the beginning to sort of explain a bit more about what's meant by stewardship. Well, Steve, what we took, standing back from the the question, doing the Building Beautiful Commission work, one of the things that we were um, at pains to try to get to the bottom of was not just how to define what better quality development would look like, but how we could actually genuinely deliver a step change in quality. So starting from that perspective, what we we did sort of looked around at some of the best quality contemporary schemes that had been built. And in almost every situation where there was better quality, we saw that the land interest and the project actually had a much longer time perspective than your standard um, build out. So the reason that we kind of got to that proposition was through analyzing what was going out on out there in the development world. And so what we really meant by stewardship was really the length of time. It's about a patient approach to land and the finance that comes into development. Okay, so so uh, it, it's a different model from the um, developer buying a piece of land, developing it, selling it off as quickly as possible, and then moving on. It, it's something different. That's ex- exactly right, Steve. So what we were um, what we were identifying was that there were really sort of two issues conflating on house building. One is the um, the activity of making a, a great place and putting the infrastructure in to do that placemaking exercise and then the building of houses and other property that might make up that community and effectively what we were identifying in stewardship was that first activity the placemaking and the infrastructuring of land potentially needs to be done under a much longer time horizon than the much more short-term activity of building property and 
by separating out those two activities, it's our view that we could potentially fund the, the first exercise, the stewardship exercise, potentially over a much longer time frame, which we think is the, the essential component to making better quality places begin to start emerging. Okay. Well, well let, let me unpack that a bit. Then. Uh, uh, if I may, uh, uh, let, let me let me refer to it as sort of the, the the standard approach to development. If, if I'm if I'm building a, a site now and, and, and I buy a piece of land or I take an option on a piece of land, and I get plan permission for it. Then um, there's good examples about how people have uh, developed and delivered good quality places. Um, and one of the things that was in the Building Better, Building Beautiful uh, Commission's report was this idea of a kite mark. Now, uh, um, I could see a situation where if I could demonstrate that I was the sort of developer that produced great places uh, and you know, the, the, the infrastructure was there and it was open and green and healthy and, and people like living there and it was well designed, you might say, I'm the sort of developer that gets a kite mark, that, that you, you can trust me to deliver a good place. Now, it strikes me that that's one way of just looking at uh, kite marking good planning. But I think you're probably looking at something deeper than that. We, we are, Steve. I think, I think where we, we um, I mean, there is no doubt that there are people in the market who are building really outstanding quality um, projects. Not as many as we'd want, but there are people there doing it. Um, generally speaking, those are schemes, as you say, that are already benefiting from infrastructure potentially, and maybe not on the scale that some of the development programme that we're talking about needs to take place. So, I mean, what we would probably say is that a kite marking exercise to distinguish a, a developer who is, um, you know, there to do a quality project and actually to build out what you know they've negotiated at planning, absolutely, I think that would help enormously. Um, and amongst those um, you know, smaller scale schemes, I think that's where there could be you know, a huge impact. But the stewardship proposition really is trying to um, approach the difficulty of larger schemes where there's more infrastructure required and more placemaking required. And I think that's one of the areas of the market that's really not delivering very well at the moment. Okay, so um, the white paper, which is... Uh, <coughs> okay well, consultation ends this month, but it's, it's sort of still out there, uh, talks about the big schemes, perhaps uh, a new settlements being something that would come through a development consent order regime and a, a different sort mm -hmm. of approach. I suppose uh, the thinking behind that is about trying to capture some of the uh, the broader stuff that you need to, to, to deal with infrastructure, yeah. like to deliver big places. Now, um, would, would your stewardship proposal be incompatible with, with that sort of approach? It, no, it absolutely would not, Steve, but I think what we've looked at development consent order regimes quite closely and our view is that they're quite heavy duty for the purpose of building communities as opposed to um, a single piece of infrastructure. Um, so while I think it provides a mechanism, um, one of the possibilities we've been looking at in fact are local development orders which sit within the existing planning system they haven't been exercised um, extensively within a residential context to date um, but you know our view is that they're probably more flexible and more compatible with the existing planning system and the problem with the DCO is that you have to have everything tied down on day one and our experience and you know, knowledge of some of these larger scale schemes 
well, you do want to tie down a lot. Um, you do also need to allow for flexibility because they're so lengthy. You're running through a number of development cycles. Yeah. Well, let me come back to that then. and, and uh, this idea of a longer timeline. Um, and uh, so, so I'm, I'm a landowner then that's interested in, in getting involved in a longer investment of my time and my assets in delivering a, a great place. Um, uh, I suppose the question is, you know, famously we've seen people like uh, Prince Charles from Pambury uh, uh, embark on, on this uh, approach. But, but for other landowners, what, why would they do this? Well, what's their incentive? I think there's, I mean, they're, they're, it's interesting. The, the, the incentive, I think, is, is, is a creative one, partly. Um, I think, obviously, there's an opportunity to um, make money for the estate over a period. But I think there's another uh, side to that where you've got um, a land interest that is there for the long term, which, you know, many of them are for multi-generational periods, is that they have to live and work in those communities. They feel a responsibility to the communities and you know, they, you know, they need to go. And uh, I mean, down the pub is the sort of, you know, the standard form of words, but you know, that they, um, they, they, there are people who they have long-term relationships with, who they feel um, a responsibility towards. Now, this, um, this initiative um, that we put together has been careful not just to focus on those very large scale landowners who have already dipped their toe into this market. I mean, what we're looking at is how you can bring um, agriculture, agricultural land into land pools in order to satisfy where planning identifies that development ought to go. Um, so that could be multiple farmers or small scale landowners. It could equally be a local authority. So that stewardship interest um, is Absolutely for the long term, but it doesn't need to be a large-scale single-interest landowner that needs, you know, that's needed to participate in it. Okay, so 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 again, let, let me dig a little bit deeper there. Um, you, you you get a, a landowner or a group of landowners who uh, buy into the idea that they want a longer-term interest in the land. Um, they uh, have got the right, let's say, the right credentials in terms of creating a great place, and they, they know how to do it. Um, and uh, they um, uh, they embark on this, the site's allocated in a local plan perhaps, <coughs> and they then come forward and say, well, we'll bring this forward. Um, just, if you can, just explain to me that sort of life cycle of the of the development then. I mean, how does, how does, how do they take it forward and, and uh, you know, what, what uh, the various steps along the line uh, and how do they, how do they make their money? Yeah, well, I, and the, I mean, the, the initial step, Steve, under you know, standard planning is, is that they have to get together and promote that land together under the current planning system. That may change um, with the white paper, of course. The, we may see more public um, involvement in identifying the most appropriate land for development. And, and that actually may be welcome because actually there's an awful lot of money possibly spent unnecessarily um, running competitive promotions which end up you know sometimes going nowhere and uh, you know a lot of money gets kind of spent in that main thing is the land interests come together in the knowledge that a local authority is is looking positively at a given piece of land they find a way to associate themselves together that at the moment is a bit complicated because of the way tax treats them and we're trying to uh, put a case to treasury to make that a, an easier process if it's a single interest, 
that makes it easier. They take that land through the planning process. That is expensive, and that's exactly the point that drives a lot of landed interest into the arms of a third-party promoter. We're looking at ways that that, um, that phase of development can be funded differently. Um, once you get to planning permission, the um, rather than sell, the land is vested in an equity position against much longer term uh, patient capital that pays for the infrastructure and a place for the placemaking. Um, at that point, the, the, the land could potentially um, be chopped up in a series of different ways. And one of the advantages of the process would be that alongside the volume house builders who will undoubtedly be major players in the build out, because you've got a long-term stewardship entity sitting there controlling that land, we could just as easily sell to smaller scale regional builders. They could sell to plots to individuals wanting to self-commission, self-build. It changes uh, the geography of how land on the edge of settlements is chopped up. And we think that could be enormously to the benefit of creating a more competitive um, com competitive market and build-out. So, so as a landowner, uh, I, do I retain my ownership of the land? So, so am I selling uh, long-term leaseholds to people or is it, uh, um, is, is it not a freehold sale? You've got, a, you've got a number of options there, Steve, and I think that you know, it's very much down to the, the, the deal and the financial circumstances of the parties, but either they can sell outright to one of their builders, put it under a set of conditions. A critical point is that through um, contract, the land interest is able to um, exercise um, property controls over the land as in parallel with planning so that some of the criteria that we would want to see built into design codes can be operated through contract as well as through planning. So you're getting two sets of controls over the land. This is one of the essential points in looking at the exemplary schemes that we looked at was identifying this dual controls over land. So back, I mean, to your question, um, either the landowner sells outright or our modeling has shown that if they've got the ability to sit in a patient position and not take the land value until right at the end once the property is built, everybody benefits from that situation. We think that you know, financially the landowner will get a better return and it eases the, um, the costs on development, especially in the case of the smaller scale builder who's not having to pay for the land up front. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, you, you mentioned uh, tax in, in, in the, uh, the answer there, uh, and I'm not going to, to ask for an explanation as to how the, the, the tax system uh, would work, but clearly there, there is an issue about um, uh, not having disincentives. Or, uh, in, Absolutely, in yeah. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about, uh, I, I know there's been some research done on, on some of the, uh, the, the this theory. I mean, uh, are there, uh, is there any evidence uh, if you go down this sort of approach to development that the outcomes are, uh, are, are in any way enhanced over the existing approach? Well, Steve, I mean, what we actually started with was the outcomes. We, um, I mean, our research methodology started off looking at where both in contemporary practice and historically the best quality urbanism in the UK ha, you know, has emerged. And 
So actually by starting from that perspective and then looking at what the development process was that delivered that better quality outcome, in a, a, a large swathe of cases, we were identifying this longer term stewardship position as being the essential characteristic of how high quality urbanism through a lot of the 19th century suburbs that are some of the most popular bits of residential real estate now um, up and down the UK but that inner ring of Victorian suburbs tended to be produced on this model and then through the 20th century you know we you know, obviously we've got the example of the um the you know the garden towns and um to a certain extent that's the sort of logic that was sitting behind them. And then more recently, the work of the Duchy of Cornwall and other land interests, Ernest Cook Trust has done some very interesting work in this area. Um, a number of, of estates and public sector partners. One of our exemplary schemes that we've been looking at was the Crown Street regeneration of um, the Gorbals in Glasgow, which was a public-public partnership. So, I mean, there is certainly a track record and there's certainly robustness to the method. Do you think the, um, uh, and uh, thinking about that sort of historic perspective to, to, to some of this, uh, uh, to this, this, this approach, uh, um, the public engagement in, in this, and are we relying on benevolent uh, philanthropic thinking that's going to uh, say, well, I, I believe that I can produce a, uh, a great place, or is there going to be a, a sort of an opportunity for people either adjacent to or who might even, indeed then live in the place to, to have a say on, on what places might look like? Well, as that's the absolutely essential um, starting point, Steve. I mean, all of this has to work, move forward with consent, um, in our opinion. I mean, I think um, that actually underscores one of the issues that, you know, I personally have around design coding. Design coding is the end point of a, a revised process towards a good quality master plan. And the starting point for that has to be talking to people about what their aspiration for their place is. And I mean, from our perspective, you know, I, I, we think that that land interest has a key role to play in asking that question, asking people how they think their place should grow not limiting it just to you know what housing do you need but actually a much broader question around what's the economic future of this place what are your needs as a community how can we help you to live better and that's i mean not only does that potentially get to a different proposition around development which potentially overcomes some of the hurdles of resistance but we think it also possibly makes for a better development process commercially because actually by um, engaging in that interrogation of you know what ought to happen given place you actually uncover a whole set of things that as a professional coming in from outside you might not otherwise know so yeah. yes absolutely and it's not just a benevolent and you know it's it's actually a proper thing to do from a commercial point of view we think so so where's the um the uh if you like the, the, the tipping point from, from uh, you know, uh, you've got uh, developers who are busy uh, um, on the current development model, if, if, I, if I can call it that, yeah. and they began to say that there's a different model to produce better outcomes uh, with 
greater public engagement and uh, the, uh, the stewardship will, will produce better returns both commercially but also as in terms of outcomes. Is there a tipping point at which point we're going to suddenly find that everybody realizes this and, and goes to this new model or is it still going to be more bespoke uh, there'll be a site here a site there? It's, it's a very interesting question Steve. I think um, if we could move forward with the tax equalization proposal that I mean it's a boring um, and, and technical area but I mean effectively what we're trying to make sure is that, that, a, that a land interest and an investor coming into this doesn't experience any more risk than under the normal situation so if we can get that situation sorted on the tax front and if we can identify the long-term sources of finance that are required to take this forward I think there will be a tipping point we saw that actually and interestingly enough, I mean, I've been uh, observing the rise of the um, socially responsible investment market now, sort of termed the SG investment market that, you know, attaches very much to the equities world rather than the property world. Property is a bit of a slow coach coming on board with that kind of thinking. But there was there was certainly a moment when it went from being, you know, a small amount of, of funding under management, which was demonstrating theory around the fact that you could make at least as much money, if not more, by going down that route. And it suddenly mushroomed and became a very mainstream area of property, of, of investment activity. It's our firm belief that stewardship will probably experience a similar trajectory. We need to have a number of exemplar schemes testing this out across different property markets, across different geographies and situations um, we actually tried to assemble a group of land interests that would be prepared mm. to take their land forward under that model um, and our ambition was to find one in every county in England so that we'd be able to influence markets locally from years of observing the way the property market moves I'm convinced that um, a few pathfinder schemes that are successful that begin to tell that story and where people can observe how the different business relationships work will um will will be incredibly influential on on, on behavior and yes absolutely i think there will be a moment where that would tip but i think we do need to get that wider range of pathfinder projects out there i think i mean the interesting thing is kind of what's the moment for change i think COVID has brought a massive um, sort of re, um, rethink of actually how we live and there has to be property consequences in that. So without saying, I mean, there, there, there's been so many bad things about COVID, but maybe one of the good things is making us all realize that we can live more locally, but then actually that raises a whole question about, well, what do we need to live locally? And I think the kind of model that we're proposing could answer some of that. Well, I think that's true. The, the, the pandemic will make us reset some of our, our thinking going going forward for sure. Um, I suppose um, to perhaps conclude, uh, Gail, I mean, it's been fascinating to, to, to hear uh, your, your thoughts on, on this sort of different approach. But I suppose, uh, I'm gonna, and this may be a difficult question but, uh, to answer, but, but if you're going to try and, uh, and sell this, if, if, you, if, you're, if your strap line uh, uh, was going to say, now, why should people do this? Uh, it, I mean, is it a, uh, it, a question of you can get great outcomes and you can make more money 
doing this. Is that the the line, or is it more a question of you can make as much money as you've ever made before and create much better outcomes? I mean, I'm sort of it's the same thing, but the other way around. But I mean, what's your what's your sales pitch? What's my sales pitch? Build build back. You know, it's probably build back better. Do it now. We (laughs) the world needs it. We all need it. I think. I mean, I think there's some big uh, agendas that it answers, Steve. And I think. You know, I think it, it's the right thing to do, but we also think it will make make people more money, um, albeit maybe you know, on a more patient time frame. It's the marshmallow test. If you can um, hold on, um, you'll get get more down the line. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that the the Americans did an experiment with children, presented them with two uh, with with one marshmallow, and told them they could have two if they could wait twenty minutes. <laughs> so that's really we're asking the industry to do that. Hang on for your second marshmallow. Absolutely. <laughs> Gail, thank you very much for that discussion. That's been fascinating. And, uh, and thank you very much for spending time with me today. It's been great speaking, Steve. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Our World is Local from Kratos. To hear more, go to kratos.co.uk slash podcasts.